Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagra Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As Vladimir Putin escalates the brutality of his invasion of Ukraine, despite crushing economic sanctions, the Russian leader is now considering nationalizing Western companies operating in Russia. And as sanctions can cut both ways, the global economy is girding for Russia to cut off its supplies of critical uh, elements and minerals like fertilizer, as well as titanium and finished titanium goods from the world market. Energy prices continue to surge as inflation pressures mount, as investors struggle with the implications of freezing the world's 11th largest economy from the world market. Although the Omicron surge is receding, the Transportation Security Administration has extended the mask mandate for travelers until April 18. Thus far, the pandemic has killed more than 966,000 Americans and more than 6 million worldwide. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Unfortunately, they're going to be joining us in two groups. Sash will go first, and then we will hear from Richard and Ron. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Ron and Richard, as I said, are going to join us later in the program. And joining us now is Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm, uh, Agency Partners in sunny London. Sash, thanks so very much for joining us. Thanks very much indeed, Fargo. Always a pleasure. Uh, always a pleasure, uh, indeed. Uh, again, uh, Richard and Ron will be joining us later in the program. But first, wanted to sort of get your take uh, in in sort of a, a blank way, right? What is it you found most interesting about this war uh, in uh, the week since we had you last on? Okay, I'm, I think uh, in the north and the, in the northeast of Ukraine, uh, I, I've almost got a sense of, of deja vu. This is about weather. It's about conditions. It's about going. Uh, it's fairly apparent that the Russian forces are making fairly slow progress in the north and the east. And the reason for that is simple. Uh, it's been a warm winter. The ground is uh, very soft. Armour cannot easily deploy uh, off road. And therefore, they are essentially advancing down roads. And when you advance down roads, you become a very, very long extended target. And you're very, very vulnerable to any sort of attrition from uh in this case, uh, anti-armor weapons uh, by, by the Ukrainians. But I think it's been fascinating the degree how slow the going has been in the north compared to the south of Ukraine, which is a much lower rainfall area in general, and where Russian forces, I think probably less well reported, have been uh, making stronger progress. So, I mean, that's been the, that's been the first thing. Second thing, there's been a, quite a lot of reporting on this side of the Atlantic that we haven't yet seen the awe bit, or perhaps the shock bit of shock and awe by the Russians, namely their very, very strong artillery capabilities. Um, and I actually think that this is a, a function of the first point I made, which is that it becomes about logistics. Russian logistics are essentially truck 
Osborne, their trucks are, by the standards of those operated by um, Germany, the US, the UK, actually quite small in terms of payload, typically six tons rather than eight, 10, 12, 16 ton uh, trucks, which is fine in terms of trying to deal with the very poor going, but it means that they can't actually supply their artillery. My experience is that artillery is the logistic breaker. Anytime you start a uh, high intensity of artillery fire, uh, the uh, burden in terms of supporting that by bringing up more rounds is crippling for anything other than an incredibly swept up force operating under perfect conditions. And I think what we're seeing here is the Russians aren't using their artillery as much as we had feared. It's still dreadful, but they're not using it to the level that we've seen you know, in all of those publicity uh, videos from Russian um, uh, exercises over the years. The reason why they're not using it at that level is they cannot resupply the guns and they can't resupply the guns because if you are advancing down single track or you know, two, two lane roads, um, and your trucks have a relatively limited payload per vehicle. They just can't get the can't get the ammo up to the artillery. I certainly hope that's that's the case. But those, I mean, those are the the two big issues. And then clearly, you know, whoever thought or whoever hoped that uh, man portable missiles, whether it is anti anti aircraft missiles or uh, anti-tank missiles would have such a dominant effect on the battlefield as this. So most of the damage then the Russians are doing, or they're doing uh, with aircraft, right? I mean, the Russians in their order of battle see uh, artillery as the king of battle, uh, right? Um, so all these towns are being flattened then with conventional artillery or more through just carpet bombing by dumb bombs effectively against apartment Actually, blocks. Uh, look, this is a very... Um, uh, it's a very difficult thing to say, but actually, I don't think they're flattening many towns. You know, we have not yet seen a Grozny. That is a flattened town. We've not yet seen Ale Aleppo in Syria. That was a flattened town. Um, the damage they're doing is with the artillery, but actually, I would say they are uh, they are firing with one hand behind their back at the moment. We're not seeing the weight of artillery fire that uh, we all feared. It's still dreadful, uh, you know, especially for, for the poor Ukrainians. But it's a lower level of fire than I would have expected. And the Russian Air Force, it's not quite missing, but the Russian Air Force is very, very second order uh, in all this. Um, partly, I think, because Ukrainian air defences are still intact. Uh, partly because the Russian Air Force doesn't seem to have the um, uh, precision-guided munition capability that we take for granted in the West. But overall, I would say the Russian Air Force is much less effective, much less effectual than we would have we would expect it two weeks ago. Um, as you said, right, weapons like Javelin, uh, N-Laws, um, we've seen Stinger, uh, UK is transferring uh, the UK equivalent uh, to that uh, weapon, the Star Streak, uh, which is an extraordinarily uh, good weapon. Um, and, and we're seeing uh, the Ukrainians using the Bayraktar drones uh, to great effect. Uh, as, as you saw the headline, uh, Poland surprised Washington a little bit with a proposal to take uh, its uh, new frontline MiG-29s. Obviously, a little bit of concern. Poland didn't want to give them up. 
um, initially uh, when it offered airplanes to Ukraine. Ukraine took a look at the airplanes that uh, Poland and a uh, number of other countries uh, were offering uh, the, the Russian aircraft and basically concluded, look, th these will require too much work. We need frontline airplanes. At the time, all these countries, Poland, Romania, uh, you know, said, look, we're, we're going to need these if things go sour for us. Uh, and then the Poles came up with the idea, hey, well, why don't we give you the MiG-29s? Washington gives us F-16s. Uh, and then, you know, when it sounded like there might be some risk to Poland uh, specifically, Warsaw's answer was, hey, we'll just drop those off at Ramstein, the American base in Germany, and, and you guys figure out getting them to the Ukrainians. And then Washington's reaction was to shoot that, uh, no pun intended, shoot that proposal down. Um, how did that go over? Was that a step down uh, I mean, I don't think there's any Air Force on the planet that's ever said, I want to be smaller. So the Zelensky government uh, would like to have those 38 jets if they could get their hands on it. I think it should have been settled quietly in the dead of night uh, without any fanfare. W what's your sense about how that issue is playing and whether or not it suggests, uh, you know, the, the, the West stepping back because the U.S. administration has said, hey, that's going to be a red line for the Russians that we don't want to cross. I mean, I have to say, I think that's absurd. Uh, because, again, all of those other weapons are killing more Russians on a daily basis than these jets would. If you are um, a Russian within Putin's circle, I would be astonished if they do not see this. Uh, and I think it's been a pretty sorry um, tale so far. But I would be astonished if they did not see this as being evidence that you can you can scare the West down. You can scare the US down. You can scare the Poles down. And that if you threaten, if you bluster enough, you can stop them from Transfer, transferring the uh, such high-end weapons to the Ukrainians. So even if that's not the intention, I think that will be a conclusion that is drawn by uh, the Russians. What were the problems? I think, I think you've absolutely hit, on, hit the nail on the head. Uh, conducting negotiations about quick transfer of very, very high-end uh, weapons in public, on Twitter, um, etc. is just is not the way you do these things. Uh, so let's hope that we hear nothing more about it. But strangely, the Ukrainian Air Force uh, gains in combat power over the coming weeks. That would be the best outcome for those of us, which I think is all listeners on this podcast who, who you know, who want the, the Ukrainians to uh, survive and prevail. Um, but, you know, let's not talk about it in, in public anymore. I think that there is starting to be a very clear understanding, but it's not formalized yet, that if you, if you as a European nation transfer a ton of material to Ukraine, um, you will be seen okay. If what you've done is been to weaken your forces, other NATO forces will protect you. Romania, Bulgaria, Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, you know, clearly talking about them. Transfer your, your Russian aircraft, your Russian air defense systems uh, to Ukraine and the rest of NATO will look after you. That's the whole point of a defensive uh, alliance. Um, if you are transferring stuff out of your war stocks, um, there has to be the, the internal uh, assumption that uh, you know, your government, your treasury will fund uh, a purchase of new stuff to, to make up for that. That's a real issue for the UK. The UK is transferred on our estimates over 45% of its entire remaining stock of anti-tank weapons to the Ukraine. I'm utterly proud we've done that, but we're a bit short of anti-tank weapons now, particularly Enlock. I should uh, point out to the audience that, uh, you know, you said air defense systems, John Kirby, the Pentagon spokesman, um, who uh, was most vocal about shooting down the, the Polish proposal, again, the swap, uh, the uh, frontline MiGs, 
uh, for F-16s, which the Poles already operate, uh, made clear that the Ukrainians don't need more aircraft. What they need are more anti-tank weapons, more anti-air weapons, uh, and indeed called on um, Ukraine's neighbors who operate like air defense systems Hey, that's a defensive system. That's not a red line. Get it over there and help your, you know, help Ukraine uh, improve uh, the the capability of those air defense uh, bubbles. Does the UK? I want to shift gears a little bit now, uh, Sash, to um, these sort of more industrial questions. UK, of course, uh, rolled out its shipbuilding uh, strategy with none other than Defense Secretary Ben Wallace to be <laughs> dubbed the shipbuilding czar, um, which was kind of an interesting term at the time. The alliance. Sort of fights a uh, a a a new czar. Uh, um, will the UK be doing any crash ordering of new weapons or factories coming online in Europe and in the UK to start uh, replenishing some of these more depleted uh, stocks? Because the question in the United States does not seem to be as urgent about you know triggering the Defense Production Act and building uh, a lot more kit, right? As we heard from Dov Zakheim on Friday. Uh, the former Pentagon comptroller, our, our stocks are vast and we don't need to be, uh, you know, pulling any alarm bells yet. Um, we're certainly not hearing any sa- any signs militarily that the UK is about to start reordering. I think that politically, and this is, this is coming up the agenda quite fast. And there's always tension between the political side of UK defence. And I increasingly believe that the UK doesn't actually have enough political oversight over the military and, and the military side. I don't think the military terribly wants to order more stuff. I think they've seen uh, offloading older missile systems as being, a, you know, a sort of, uh, you know, a minor positive in terms of, of destocking. I think politically it's going to become incredibly important. And I think also politicians in the UK and, and other European nations are going to start looking at levels of readiness and uh, combat availability that the armed forces might find very uncomfortable. Because what they might say is, you were working under one assumption, politically that's no longer acceptable, you must work under under another assumption which is a higher level of availability and a higher level of of readiness. And I think that's going to be one of the very interesting uh, tensions across Western Europe of the next, I mean, let's say six months, I really hope Ukraine is, is is with us uh, as an independent uh, democratic nation over the next six months. But it, that's going to be the big issue for the European nations. We've done actually some work at Agency Partners on um, availability of industrial assets. Um, we focused initially on uh, combat aircraft. And the interesting conclusion there was that the combat aircraft programs with the greatest availability uh, are Eurofighter Typhoon, where uh, two out of the four production lines are very, very low level at the moment. UK and Italy, but there's probably the ability to switch on uh, an an additional 30 plus aircraft a year. The system is up for that uh, if the demand is there. Um, F-35, clearly the F-35 line was scaled for at least 25 aircraft a year, more than Lockheed Martin is currently producing. And then possibly up to, but no more than a dozen Gripens a year. Those are the, the fighter aircraft programs where the tap could be turned on very quickly if the demand is there. The, the wild card is F-18. Nobody wants to buy the F-18, but boy, there's a lot of capacity there. If you look at historic peak production in the 50s, up to up to 60 a year, and production currently at, tw- at 12. Um, right. That is probably the biggest area of excess capacity, but somebody's got, somebody's got to want to take those aircraft on. Uh, F-35, Eurofighter Typhoon, Gripen, that's a much easier proposition. 
uh, and and we should point out, right? I mean, for all the criticism occasionally heaped on that is that it's not a you know fifth generation airplane. The F eighteen is an extraordinarily uh, capable strike jet. Uh, that can carry a, a, a fair bit of uh, a, a, a kit, uh, as you guys would put it, uh, as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, have... look, Bargo, Bargo, MiG-29 is a, a third-generation minus jet. It's probably what is what is of use in Ukraine at the moment. I mean, they'd love some Sukhoi-27. It's not going to get them. But I think arguing about whether it's the most up-to-date, I'd rather have an asset now that I can use, that I can absorb, and I think this applies for all European air forces, than wait for the next generation to come along. European air forces cannot afford to wait until 2035, 2040 for the next generation fighter aircraft. They need to be putting in purchases now to get their combat mass back up to where it should have been. Um, uh, we've got uh, about a minute left. I've got two questions to ask. One, uh, UK uh, shipbuilding plan uh, ruled out with a little bit of fanfare with the uh, prime minister, uh, uh, obviously the defense secretary, as well as uh, other uh, key uh, stakeholders in uh, UK, both industry as well as on the government side of things. What do you make of the shipbuilding plan? Uh, and is it what those of us who are fans of industrial strategy will find interesting or worthy of the name? Uh, no, it's not. I've only read the strategy once, but I have read it through. Um, so I think that puts me in a pretty small uh, uh, minority somewhere up on the right-hand end of the graph there. Um, <laughs> what is- You've always you know, been known as somebody <laughs> who does his homework, Satch. <laughs> no, that's very kind of you. Um, so what is good? It talks about a shipbuilding pipeline. It accepts that as a nation, you have to keep your dockyards busy and stable. You can't go from boom to bust back to boom again, because when you go back to boom again, uh, your skills have been lost. Your assets have uh, at best atrophied might even have been shut and all sorts of harm comes of that. That's good. What's bad? is that it is very mealy-mouthed about issues of competition. There's a dreadful big block paragraph which says, MAD will consider the long-term industrial impact of different options. Um, and then it talks about value for money. Well, that's always a poison phrase when used by uh, British ministries. And it says, um, uh, you know, we'll decide whether the optimum approach, I don't want the optimum approach, by the way, will be single source procurement. Yeah. A UK competition. Fine. An international competition or a blended competitive approach. I know of no other major nation in the world uh, that would even consider having international competition or a blended competitive approach. They buy from their domestic yards because that's what keeps the volumes up. That's what keeps the skills up. That's what keeps the technology up. And um, that way you have a healthy shipbuilding industry and you have a healthy Navy. So I think the fact they, that this document even considers international competition or a blended competitive approach is frankly toxic. Um, I should uh, point out to the audience, right? Auxiliary ships, uh, UK, uh, Royal Navy auxiliary ships are actually uh, being built in South Korea, right? Which was- Yeah, and, and, and how good is that for UK shipbuilding? Not at all. I would say the exact same thing. And uh, at the time it was done for value for money. Um, and yeah. uh, at the time also there was a capacity question in fairness, while uh, the UK yeah. uh, shipbuilding industrial complex was focused on building two big deck aircraft carriers. And it's yeah. great to see both of those ships are now actually at sea simultaneously, uh, which, is, yeah. which is terrific. Uh, let me ask you one last question, Leonardo. 
uh, uh, earnings. Uh, full disclosure, everybody knows Leonardo DRS is one of our sponsors. Take it away in terms of what the results or any other results that you thought were interesting. Uh, Leonardo is the most important set of results that we had here in Europe this week. Um, these were good, you know, and what I think was really heartening is the best single business in Leonardo at the moment was Defence Electronics. Leonardo in 2021 beat our forecast for 2022. Just what we want. Um, and uh, you know, clearly, the you know they've started to turn some of the businesses in uh, in Leonardo around faster than we had hoped. That's positive. Cash flow was good. Um, they had raised guidance uh, about a month ago, but you know it was very much in line with that. And the guidance of cash flow to 2022 is stronger. The problem for Leonardo has not been the defense businesses historically. It's been the civil, the mixed businesses, aerostructures and helicopters. Helicopters is turning around because they've got uh, good military work, particularly the Qatari order for NH90s. But aerostructures, which is Boeing 787 in particular, that's a, that's a slow burn turnaround. But it looks as if they have got a grip of that. It doesn't look as if that's going to slip back again. And so what you've got is a business where the defense assets are performing well. Everybody just wants this sort of defense exposure at the moment. You know, electronics, land systems, combat aircraft, um, uh, missile systems. It's a, it's a really good mix of business. Uh, appears to, you know, starting strong. Uh, and they've stopped the rot. They stopped the, uh, the problems in the aerostructures business. So, no, we, we thought these were, these were good, good results. Um, and, you know, the calls were good. Sash, thanks so very much for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Uh, and hopefully we can get the band uh, all together again uh, next week. Thank, thanks so much. Have a great week and uh, looking forward to next uh, weekend. Thanks very much indeed, Fargo. Always a pleasure. And a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and Control. And joining us now are Ron Epstein and Richard Abalafia. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you. I am just satisfied that we managed to get the three of you on the show, even in, in two segments, given that everybody is on the move uh, in, in different places and unfortunately schedules uh, intervened. Uh, Ron, uh, talk to us about the, uh, the week, right? I mean, your uh, take on inflation was high. It's now going to get even higher, right? We were at 7.8%, which was a 40-year high. looks like we're going to pass that. Uh, and there, you know, investors are really struggling uh, with this, right? I mean, some of this was predictable. Uh, folks were buying into higher energy prices. Uh, they are going up now. U.S. government is trying to work to get alternate sources of supply or increase production. Obviously, if you're an oil company and are getting a lot of money, uh, it might not, you know, might not be in your interest to reduce those oil prices uh, at all. Or if 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 you're, um, you know, somebody who's pumping it out of the ground, give us sort of a survey on how the aerospace and defense group uh, performed. Yeah, so it was um, a, a broadly negative week for for the entire group. If you look at uh, the S and P, it closed down the week uh, just under three percent. Um, the defense stocks closed down more than that. If you look at Lockheed, uh, it was down 4%. Uh, Northrop Grumman was down 6%, but that's after going straight up for about two weeks. So uh, it's not surprising to see some profit taking, particularly into a weekend. Um, you know, Raytheon Technologies and Boeing traded with the market, kind of just right in line with the market. Interestingly enough, uh, we saw the lessors this week get some relief and bounce back. Uh, Aircap. Uh, was up about seven percent on the week after really getting hit uh, pretty hard on you know the the questions surrounding what's going to happen to those those aircraft in Russia. 
uh, particularly the ones they own. But uh, you know, there's about what 450 aircraft in Russia that are owned by financiers that are from outside Russia. So that's still a bit of an open question. When you look at the other metrics that we look at, um, the the uh, ten-year yield bounced back up to just a smidge under two percent. Uh, and I think that was on the heels of the inflation print that you mentioned at 7.8%. Uh, I think our, our economists are looking for, you know, that you could see, um, you know, eight and a half, maybe 9% inflation, depending on how the, the impact of what's going on in the, uh, in Eastern Europe, how that all flows through. You've got a lot of different things moving around. I mean, used car prices went up huge. Uh, um, that probably won't repeat. So you've got some positives and negatives, but most likely we'll see inflation go higher than where it is today. So you, you got, you got a lot of, a lot of things going on and, you know, broadly uh, a, a negative market on the week and an expectation uh, for, for interest rates to go up. And then maybe finally, um, when you look at energy prices, you know, one of the factors that's going to impact inflation, uh, you know, we ended the week with kind of, you know, you know uh, uh, WTI crude, you know, the most common one, you know, when you price it in North America at about 110 a barrel, right? And it's just, it's just, Amazing to think, Bago, right? If you go back earlier in the pandemic, so go back 18, what was it, 20 months ago, um, you were paying people to take it away. <laughs> right. So yeah. exactly. You're like, please take my oil, please take my oil. And nobody wanted it. <laughs> um, uh, alas, futures. Richard, I want to bring you in here. Um, give us a sense on supply chains, right? When we were on, uh, let off the discussion last week, um, you know, what's, what's your sense on some of the supply chain impacts here, because folks have a tendency of thinking of Russia, you know, they provide neon, which is important for the aerospace industry. They provide, you know, bulk titanium. I mean, obviously, you know, critical for fertilizer. Uh, so is Ukraine, by the way, uh, right? I mean, so there's an expectation food prices are gonna go up as, as, as well. Um, what are the sort of the secondary impacts uh, of this? Because Russia has not yet played its cards in this process, right? I mean, so far it's been the Western world that's been landing blows on him. Um, you know, he hasn't acted in cyberspace yet. Uh, he hasn't acted yet in cutting off oil and gas supplies. What, what's your sense on what the second order implications of this are going to be on the aerospace sector and the defense sector, well, right? I mean, we buy titanium from them that goes into F-35s. Yeah, I mean, but it's all come down to titanium and that's it. You know, it's not like they add value anywhere else. I mean, yes, fuel prices are an important issue, but that's a global market. Titanium is the one area where they both have a commanding position in the raw material and a very strong position in the refined product, castings and forgings. So this is a bit difficult because, yeah, the impact of supply chains of titanium being cut off, that's pretty substantial. On the military front, that'll take priority for finding replacements, but the civil, that, that, that's different. Now, nothing has happened yet, and it's important to remember it might not happen because, you know, first of all, this is about the only successful part of the economy, raw materials and the little bit of value add they get from titanium. And if they further reduce it, well, you know, Ian Bremmer over at Eurasia Group said even without any kind of uh, export restrictions on their own products, their GDP is already shrinking 10%. How much more can it shrink? You know, how much more damage do they want to do to themselves? And it's also a fairly strong bet that there are oligarchs who are, you know, leeching off some of the cash associated with the revenue stream from titanium and whatever else they're exporting. Does Putin really want to annoy them even more than they've been annoyed? Does he want to turn Russia into even more of an economic basket case? And does he want to annoy the oligarchs who have their handle, have their hand on that revenue? 
So I'm not so sure that we're really going to see a cutoff. As a kind of preemptive measure, the uh, you know Boeing has stopped purchasing. But then again, Boeing has significant stockpiles, a few months at least, maybe longer. Other people have significant stockpiles. In other words, we can play the waiting game for a bit. If this is a longer term issue, however, um, there are going to be challenges. Ron, do you want to take a bite at that uh, before before we move on to nationalization and what that could possibly mean for the likes of Boeing and, and Airbus? A couple of things we got to we got to touch on. Um, you know, as kind of we pull this onion back, uh, when you look at the refined no, no product, pun intended, no pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> the you, when you, you when you do that, um, you learn that uh, VSMPO had a, has. Uh, VSMPO at Visma has a uh, 75,000 ton press uh, in uh, in Russia that's um, you know kind of currently offline. It's used for both you know, Boeing product and Airbus product. Um, when you think about it, landing gear for wide body aircraft you know come off a press like that. Um, it's that something like that's not necessary for for narrow body aircraft. Um, there is the potential for. Um, moving some of that capacity around to other forges, uh, but that's going to take time, and 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 you have to get the forges checked out. And hopefully, their maintenance is up to date. But you know, for example, um, Howmet has a fifty thousand ton press in Cleveland that potentially could take some of that capacity. We'll see. But it's moving things around is disruptive. And then other things like the the International Aero Quality Group yanked the AS nine thousand one certification um, from the from VSMPO. So the Russian material at this point, even if you can get it, is not allowed on aircraft. Um, so it's it, from from that perspective, it's you know for the near to medium term, are there workarounds? There there probably are. But longer term, what this probably means is you're going to need some investment in the supply chain. Um, outside of Russia uh, to correct this and, you know, de-risk this for the future. And the nationalization issue, uh, Richard, do you want to start us off on that? Because anybody, you know, just so the audience knows, right? I mean, we're all uh, friends and are constantly uh, texting each other like, hey, did you see this? And and you're, um, you know, about, you know, right after we had taped the uh, last show earlier in this this week, uh, you were sort of like, oh, boy, here we go. Nationalization. Take it away. Yeah, we've simply never, you know, faced anything even remotely like this. Um, and obviously, it's part of a broader move towards possibly nationalizing a lot of Western business interests in Russia when markets have completely failed because of, well, <laughs> because of governmental stupidity uh, in this case. And when sanctions are imposed, the only possible answer to keep things from really getting dire is to nationalize stuff. Now, that might work with, I don't know, IKEA furniture inventories. But when it comes to jetliners, if you nationalize and you have the airworthiness certificates pulled and the supply of spare parts gets completely cut off, then it's a matter of weeks or months before you start cannibalizing. And of course, the value of these assets start to drop very quickly. And can they even be recovered if proper records aren't kept or if the airworthiness certificates lapse or whatever else? Nobody really knows. You know, could there be five, six, seven hundred jets that suddenly lose value after you know a few month period just in the name of keeping the country from collapsing aeronautically? And it's going to collapse anyway. You know, I mean, even if they nationalize it within a year, cannibalization will have run its course. They'll have run out of in existing inventories probably within six months, really. 
So it's a matter, even though nationalization sounds like a good measure, it's a very short term measure and it does an awful lot of damage. And there's also the secondary impact. You know, we've had the Cape Town Convention and jetliner finance, and it's basically lowered everybody's terms, you know, for capital, cost of capital. And this is going to increase the risk premium for a lot of other markets out there that will be looked at as, uh, you know, potential areas where a, a nasty government can come in and simply abrogate the Cape Town Convention with the stroke of a pen. Ron? Yeah, I, I 100% agree with Richard. I mean, the, the, the broad question now becomes, if you're you know, dealing in a potential environment where you have a government that can just simply ignore Cape Town, you know, what is the, the cost to de- de-risk that and to cover that risk? Uh, and you know, just it just comes to mind when you think about China and financing aircraft in China. China has capacity to finance its own aircraft, and they do, but there's a lot of aircraft in China that are financed outside of China. Um, does that change how that financing gets done? And then uh, broadly, uh, when you look at the leasing industry in general, the leasing industry tends to traffic the most in the markets that are the hardest to finance in, which tend to be emerging markets and otherwise. And not all those markets are always friendly to the U.S. or or Europe. And what does it mean if you're going to deliver aircraft into those markets? So I think it's a it's an important concern uh, for sure. Let me shift uh, gears uh, a little bit and go to the uh, F-16 issue, as we heard from uh, Sash uh, earlier in the program. Obviously, the uh, administration stopping uh, the Polish uh, proposal. Clearly, there were talks behind the scenes, but Washington seems to have been surprised with um, uh, the the public nature of the Polish offer, as well as moving the jets to Germany, uh, right? I mean, I'm sure that that rankled feathers. And then, you know, the U.S. would have managed to transfer them over to the Ukrainians, uh, the U.S. side. Uh, saying that those jets are not as important as anti-tank, uh, anti-armor munitions, anti-air munitions. And in fact, we heard, uh, as, as we mentioned, uh, uh, from Pentagon spokesman John Kirby, who said, hey, look, you know, if, if any of these companies have the same kind of air defense systems and that, you know, that the Ukrainians do move those over, there's a bigger demand uh, for them, even though there was this sense and this, this bit of frustration, hey, you know, you know, this could have been the criticism of the Biden administration, hey, you know, uh, don't be so afraid of crossing a Russian red line, uh, even though the administration folks say, look, that would have been a red line and, and we don't want to end up in a war with the Russians. Um, ultimately, Richard, what's what's your sense? I mean, I can't imagine if the Zelensky government says I want 38 more MiG-29s, I guess nobody better than Vladimir Zelensky knows whether he needs more MiG-29s, right? Yeah, that sure sounds right. Um, but of course, uh, as Sash says, making it public really made it difficult because rightly or wrongly, combat aircraft are perceived of as perhaps a bit more or just as offensive as they are defensive, whereas anti-tank missiles and anti-aircraft missiles are seen as purely defensive. Again, rightly or wrongly, it's a matter of perception. And of course, the idea of airplanes directly flying from a NATO base in Germany, possibly right into the, fl- the fight. You know, there's, uh, it wasn't really clear that they could satisfy the Russians and say, well, first they'll be transferred to, you know, there's no mechanism for doing that. So I think the optics of it, once it was made public, got extremely problematic. And on top of that, of course, you've got the time it would take to convert, um, you know, well, pilot training and whatever else to the, the aircraft that are a different standard, um, different radios, different whatever else. And then on top of that, these are 30-something-year-old planes. We don't really know what needs to be done with them. It was obvious the Poles had prioritized for great reasons their F-16 fleet. We don't really know the readiness of these things. So how long would they be hanging around NATO bases? 
being converted, people being trained, and then being sent directly, possibly to the fight. I think all of this, once it was made public, got really difficult fast. Uh, let me uh, let me ask um, a, a different question, and and one which I asked uh, Dove Zakheim, and, and I asked uh, Sash this as well, right? I mean, replenishing of stocks. Uh, I mean, the United States has been transferring vast quantities of Javelin uh, missiles. Uh, Dove, who was a Pentagon comptroller during the George W. Bush administration and served in the Pentagon during the Reagan administration as well, said, look, I mean, we have pretty vast stockpiles. We're giving older generation weapons, uh, you know, so so we'll be fine. Sash thinks that there is a concern and that uh, the UK needs to replenish its anti-armor uh, stocks. Do you guys see any sort of production surge coming out of this? Uh, or any other program accelerations. I mean, we're looking at a top line defense budget now that's going to pass 800, you know, or be around $812 billion with bipartisan consensus uh, for the upcoming budget, right? I mean, whatever it is the administration asked for, Congress has already made clear, we are going to plus it up by about $40 billion, right? The administration coming in at around 770, 773. Do you guys think that there's going to be a big production spurt? Here, Ron, why don't you start us off and then Richard, give us your sense. Yeah, so kind of the way I, I think about that, you know, we've been asked that question by investors is I think you have to think about how the spending will go in kind of multiple waves, right? And that this first wave of spending is you know, the here and now, you know, land systems, munitions, um, maybe command and control, maybe cyber, depending on how that goes. Um, I would probably look to the services companies to see that stuff first, right? In terms of the work they do and support logistics, cyber, uh, that's all short duration backlog stuff. And you can maybe see that in the second half of the year. Uh, and then I'd look to, you know, companies that are making land systems and munitions is sort of the next place you see it. And then it'll kind of filter its way out. I mean, ultimately, you know, the second wave would probably be, you know, what are countries going to decide about what they're going to do with tactical aircraft and so on and so forth. And then the third wave would be, more strategic. You know, are, are we buying enough uh, Columbia class? You know, there's the nuclear posture review is going on. Will this have an impact on the conclusions of that study in terms of you know, how many uh, missiles we should have in, in GPSD uh, and, and that sort of thing? So that, that, that's how we're broadly thinking of it. But um, it's the boots, beans, bullets, land systems, that kind of stuff that probably gets the first um, you know, pull of demand. And, and interestingly enough, if you think about defense budgets going up in Europe, I mean, if we see you know, you know, defense budgets across NATO go up by, um, you know, from call it one and a half percent to 2% or a little bit greater than that over a couple of years, that's a lot of money. And does Europe even have the industrial base to fulfill all that? So you'll probably, my guess would be, see some, you know, foreign military sales or direct sovereign sales um, you know, into into Europe from U.S. contractors and otherwise to fulfill some of that demand. Um, let me ask a, a quick uh, air travel uh, question. Looks like Omicron has qu- uh, crested. Uh, I think it's April 18 as the mask uh, mandate uh, has been uh, extended. Um, what's your I, I mean, I, I, you know, we've been here so many times that folks are getting back to normal. I'm, I'm traveling uh, again. Uh, I'm in Austin for the South by Southwest uh, event. Um, do you guys have a, a sense on where we are in any air travel update from from either of you? Right. I mean, there's this sort of lingering sense that as it surges elsewhere in Asia now, whether it's in Hong Kong, whether it's in China, um, you know, New Zealand struggled with higher caseloads yeah. to an extent. 
you know, there is this concern that it will metastasize somewhere else and hit us with uh, another variant or has this fever ultimately broken at this point? Maybe I'll start with this. Um, I wish I knew. <laughs> yeah. Vago, right. Okay. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, no, but, but I think, I think we can frame it this way. It, the fever does seem like it's broken here and we're moving into spring, which is also a favorable season from uh, a new variant perspective, meaning not happening into summer. So we're, we're at, at a minimum, it seems like we're going to get a break here for a while. Um, hopefully on the other side of summer, when we get back into the fall, that another um, variant doesn't come creeping in. And that's always a risk. I mean, you just got to re- remind everybody that that's a risk factor. Put that sticky note up, even though if you think we're out of the woods, we might not be. Um, but uh, it, it, we have a period here where things will seem normal for a while and hopefully it extends you know, into perpetuity. Richard? It's the unknown unknowns, isn't it? I mean, we just have no idea. Um, it does seem like it's been a rather long period of time between uh, variants at this point. That's certainly encouraging. Numbers are starting to get a bit steady. Um, but you know, obviously, there's a lot we don't know. All right, guys. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. I hope the team can be all yeah. together uh, next week, but thanks so much for making time for us for us all. Really appreciate it. Yeah, great to be here, Vago. Really wouldn't be a weekend without it. Yeah, great to be here, Vago. Thanks for doing this. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.